Welcome, everybody, to Young Adults Tonight. I hope that you are ready to study God's Word. Amen? Amen. Amen. I hope you're ready to study God's Word. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, okay. I'm with the right group then. Uh, Welcome to Young Adults Tonight. If you are new, um, I would love to meet you after the service, so I will be down front and would love to talk with you and get to know you. I am so glad that you are here. Um, if you are new, we're, you're hopping into a series that we've been going through. Uh, so today we're going to be continuing that series called, what, what is our series called? Some group participation. God is. God is. Okay, there you go. And I hope that the back wall was a little bit helpful to you. So the series that we're continuing in tonight is called God Is. And in this series, we've been focusing on God's nature and God's character in order to know Him uh, more and be able to properly respond to him. Now listen, this is what I've been stressing and emphasizing to us throughout this series. So if you haven't picked it up yet, I just want to put it, put it up on the back wall. That your perception of God, listen to me, your perception of God will determine your fellowship with God. Your perception of God will then determine your level of fellowship with him. So... For example, this is how everyday life is. If your perception of your father was that he was always angry all the time, that would then determine your level of fellowship and intimacy with him, right? You'd be a little bit standoffish. You might live in fear of him. If on the flip side of that coin, your perception of your dad was that he was passive, he was soft, that would then also determine your level of fellowship with him. You would love him, but you would tend to take advantage of him and misbehave. So your level of, uh, your perception of your earthly dad or your earthly mom, your, your friends, your perception of them determines your level of intimacy and fellowship with them, your relationship with them. And this is how it is with, with the Lord. Your perception of God determines your fellowship with Him. So if your perception of God is that He's always angry and that He is eager to punish you, that will then in turn affect your level of intimacy with Him. You live in fear of him. You're afraid that if you mess up or make a mistake that you have to get saved all over again. Come down front at the altar call and rededicate your life to the Lord because you sinned last week and your perception of God is that he's angry and eager to punish. And so that determines your level of fellowship with him. On the flip side of that, if your perception of God is that he's passive, is that he he doesn't judge because he's a God of love, then you will then tend to live a life of license. God doesn't judge. God doesn't judge my behavior or my actions, and so I can do what I want. And your perception of God determines your fellowship with Him. And so, this is my heart through this series, and just to let you know up front, that God wants you. Now, not in a weird or a creepy way, God wants fellowship with you. God wants relationship with you. And so in the pages of Scripture, He's revealed Himself to you, but what Satan in our world has done a good job of is giving you a false, biblically inaccurate perception of Him so that then it deters you from wanting fellowship with Him. That's what the enemy does. He wants you to have a false perception of who our God is so that it then in turn affects your fellowship with Him. I don't really want fellowship with this God. I'm a little fearful of this God. 
I don't want personal relationship with him. I'm not exactly sure who he is. And the world and Satan, what they've done is they've taken our eyes off of this because they know if you read this book entirely from front to end, you will want fellowship with this God. And so God has revealed himself in the pages of this book, but too often for some reason... We've left it to other people or the culture or society or social media to tell us about the Lord, and we're not in this book. This is the book where he reveals himself. And so my goal through this series, through this short series, is to kind of give us a review of God's book so that we can know the God of the Bible. And you can reject the God of the Bible, but let me just challenge you. If you want to reject the God of the Bible, I challenge you first to read this book. Because, man, when you read this book entirely and you read about who God is and who he says he is, my personal experience has been I want nothing more than just to live for the Lord and to love him and to have fellowship with him and and to pursue him. And it doesn't mean a life of perfection, but it means a life of constant fellowship with his God because God is good and God knows what's best for his kids. And so last week we dived into... uh, dived into our study, and the very first word we saw was God is eternal. And the way you get to know God is you start at the beginning of his book, and we started in Genesis chapter 1, verses, uh, Genesis 1, 1, and we talked about how God created the heavens, God created the universe, how God is outside of time, and it speaks to his eternality, he is everlasting. And so just to give you a quick review of Bible history, real quickly, just to catch us up to where we are going to launch tonight. So very first passages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, and moving forward through the uh, prophets and the Psalms and all that stuff, just a quick review of Bible history. So God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. He also created humanity, Adam and Eve. And he told Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful and multiply Do the deed, fill the earth, and go have kids, and subdue this earth. Very quickly, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. And so God banished them from his garden. Then when you get to Genesis chapter 6, it says that man's thoughts, listen, man's thoughts were only evil all the time. That's bad. Genesis chapter 6. So what did God do? God sent a flood... To destroy the earth. But he saved Noah, a righteous man, and his family through an ark. And then when the flood subsided, God gives the same command that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. He gives the same command to Noah. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. It doesn't take too long for man to screw things up again, because then you get to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And God... uh, is upset with humanity once again because humanity chooses once again to reject God and rebel against Him. They build this tower called the Tower of Babel in direct defiance to this God. So what does God do? God scatters them, confuses their language, scatters them across the world, and He chooses one man to build this nation. His name is Abraham. And He says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of this people. They're going to be called the Israelites. And through this nation, through your people, I'm going to bring a Messiah by which to save the world from this rebellion. His name is Jesus. And so this then starts the nation of Israel. 
The nation of Israel grows vast. They want a king to rule them. They say, God, we don't want you to be our king. We want a man to be our king because we want to look like the other nations around us. God says, okay, you can have a king if that's what you really want. Gives them a king. The first king, his name is Saul. And throughout the nation of Israel's history, they have some good kings, but mostly bad, corrupt kings that lead the people astray. So through Israel's history, bad kings lead bad people, and the nation of Israel and the nation surrounding Israel rebel against God. Constant rebellion. Corrupt king after corrupt king continually rebelling against him. And then God would send his prophets to warn the people. Warning them, listen, I'm sending my prophets to you to ask you to please repent and return to me because I love you. And I want what's best for you. And he sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. That's why we have the 12 minor prophets. Prophet after prophet after prophet with the same message warning the people of Israel, get right with God because if you don't, there's going to be judgment and punishment from God. The people, for the most part, reject God. They rebel against Him. And this is where we enter our study tonight with the prophet Isaiah. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, a little bit of background with Isaiah. Isaiah was one of ancient Israel's most prominent prophets. He wrote one of the longest books in the Bible. He came on the scene in the latter half of the kingdom period. And Isaiah lived in a very dark time in Israel's history. There was a lot of corruption, a lot of injustice in their society, a lot of widows, a lot of orphans, a lot of poor people, a lot of people abandoning, abandoning God. And so look with me in Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. If you need to find Isaiah and you don't know where it is, just ask a friend. It's okay. Where's Isaiah? It's kind of in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah writing, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. Okay, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So, pause with me there. This is really bizarre, right? This is pretty strange. If I were, you know, with you guys just hanging out and we were having a good time, and I said, guys, listen, last night I had this vision. I was in the throne room of God and I saw these creatures. They were called seraphim. Okay, you'd be like, Austin, what, what have you been smoking? <laughs> this is a little strange. And I'd be like, guys, I know. Okay, this is Isaiah. This is what he, he sees the throne room of God. He sees this heavenly temple in heaven, in this spiritual realm. And he, he sees God's robe and it's filling the temple. And he sees these creatures called seraphim flying, each having six wings, flying above the throne of God. Now, seraphim, very interesting creatures. Seraphim, this is the only time that the word seraphim appears in all of the Bible. In other passages of, passages of Scripture, they're called cherubim. Seraphim, cherubim. So what are these creatures? Well, let's first establish what they're not. Seraphim, they are not 
uh, precious moment figurines, like out of Hallmark. Um, they're also not chubby little babies with wings. Okay, the, this is not cherubim or, or seraphim, okay? Seraphim in the Hebrew, literally, the word seraphim, it means burning ones. These are crazy creatures. Burning ones. They are guardians of the divine presence. And look at verse 3. What are they screaming? What are they shouting? Verse 3. Verse 3. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The NIV says, the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. This is the only characteristic of God that is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. And so our word for tonight is God is holy. Let's pause there and pray and we'll dive in. Lord, we first just want to present our study to you tonight. And we just ask that you would be with us, that your presence would be here, Lord, and that you would teach us now through your word. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room tonight. I pray that you would fill them full with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and fill me as well as I speak. I pray that you would do the teaching now through your word. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. The word holy in the Hebrew is kadosh, and it means unique. It means distinct. It means set apart. Now, the word holy, most of us don't really use the word holy like in everyday life, unless you cuss a lot, which you probably wouldn't really want to admit that at church, or unless you listen to country music, little Florida Georgia line, you're holy, 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 I'm high on loving you. Amen. Praise you, Lord. Okay, shut up, Florida Georgia Line. Like, what are you talking about? So most of us don't even really use the word holy in everyday life because we kind of think of it as, like, religious. Like, oh, that's a holy man or that's a holy woman. We, we really tie it to religion, the word holy. And we don't really use it in everyday language. So most of us really think of the word holy in religious terms. But listen, at its core... The word holy, it's not about behavior, although that's a part of it, but at the core of the word holy, it's about status. Okay, if you're taking notes, write that word down, status. The word holy, it's about status at its core. It's something or someone that is unique, distinct, totally different, totally unlike anything or anyone else, totally unique. God is holy. He is unique. God is distinct. He is unlike anything or anyone else. This is his status. And part of the challenge for us in grasping this term holy is we don't really have holy things. Like we, again, we we tie the word holy to religion. And so we don't really think of the word holy in our daily lives for the most part. Holy things, sacred things. It's it's a little bit bizarre, but think of it. Think of it this way. Little illustration. There actually is one holy thing that you run into just about every single day. And you might not actually look up at it or see it, 
uh, but you can feel its presence, and, and it's, it's holy, it's, it's distinct. And what I'm talking about is the sun. Okay, the sun is holy in the sense that there is nothing else like it in our solar system. Now, yes, I know that there are other suns in our universe, but for purposes of this illustration, within our solar system, there is nothing else like this big ball of fire. It is the only one. It is distinct. There's nothing else like it in our solar system. The sun is holy. So the holiness of the sun is like God's holiness in this sense. Do do you like the sun? Is the sun good for you? Is the sun beneficial for you? And beneficial to you? Yes. Okay, the, the, sun, is, the sun is good. The, the sun is good for us. We exist because of the sun. Without the heat and the energy of the sun, uh, we wouldn't exist. The sun is the center of biological life because of the heat and the energy that the sun gives off that God has created. So we exist because of the sun. The sun is good. We like the sun. The sun is beneficial. Now, because the sun is holy and unique, does that mean that the sun is your buddy? And that you could just teleport to the surface of the sun and have a picnic on the sun? Check in on your buddy? No. Okay, why? Because when you are unexposed when you are exposed to the, to the sun and its intense heat, um, it will kill you. It will roast you. Why? Because the sun is bad? No. The sun is good. But it's because we're puny little humans. I'm not prepared in my human state to face the power of the sun. It is good for me But if I am unprotected to it, it will destroy my life. It's very interesting. This, in some sense, can help us understand God's holiness. God is holy. In the Bible, God's holiness, first off, it's his unique status as the one creator and sustainer of the entire universe. And then verse 3, look at verse 3 again. What do these seraphim, these angelic creatures say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. So they link His holiness to His status as Creator. All creation is a show or a theater of God's significance and His glory and His goodness. He is the only one who has the power to create and sustain all of life. In the Bible, God is holy. It speaks towards His status as unique. So holiness, it talks about God's status, but holiness, number two, it speaks to his moral purity and integrity. God is holy. His moral purity and integrity. His passion for justice, for beauty, for goodness. He is the ground of all that is right versus wrong. Good versus evil. God's justice emanates from his holiness. And this is how we know the difference between right and wrong and have an understanding of morality because God has woven morality into the fabric of the universe. And the Bible says that God has written his law of morality on our hearts. You don't need to teach someone or tell someone not to steal or murder. You know it's wrong. No one had to tell you not to do that. 
I don't have to teach my three-year-old and one-year-old daughters not to steal or to lie. They do that just fine on their own. They're little sinners. God has given them a moral compass. I didn't have to teach them not to do those certain things. This is how we know the difference between right versus wrong because there is a higher standard by which we understand what is true morality. God is holy. It speaks to his moral purity. He is, he is moral purity. He is one of a kind, unique, distinct, and different. And then what happens in our story here when Isaiah gets teleported into the presence of this holy God? Is he happy? Is he going to have a picnic? No, let's look at verse 4. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with, with smoke. So I said, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's holiness makes him the one who upholds Isaiah's very existence. And Isaiah knows that God is the one who has given me life. And he's also, he also may be responsible for ending it. And so he replies when he is exposed in his brokenness and in his sinful state, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live with people of unclean lips. He's undone, he's completely broken, exposed in the presence of this holy God. That's how he responds. This raw experience in the presence of a being that's so powerful, he's undone in the presence of, a total, holy, of total holiness and moral purity. His own sin and the sin of his people is so exposed, it is spotlighted, broken and sinful. This does not sound like a good time. Woe is me, he says. And just like the sun is not bad, does God's holiness mean that he's bad? No. Nothing is wrong with him. It means that something's wrong with us. And that's not God's problem, it's our problem. And this is where we start to get nervous. People in our culture, and maybe, maybe your upbringing or your background, uh, your family upbringing, your church background, feeds into this stereotype. Okay, yes, I knew it was coming. God is a holy God, yes, I know that He's perfect, He's righteous. He can't stand sinful humanity, so He's eager to punish sin, He's eager to judge, He's eager to punish all that is wrong in the world. He's eager to punish me. He's angry all the time. He can't stand human evil. He can't stand human failure. And so he's going to roast you. I knew it was coming in this series. Now, if that was or is or has been your thought process, you couldn't be more wrong about God. And you couldn't be more right either, in a sense. So here's the thing about God's holiness. I think that many of us tend to perceive God's holiness as something like God has a personality, personality disorder. Like, just chill out, God. Just relax. 
Why you gotta be so angry? Why you gotta be so uptight? Why you gotta be so rude? Okay, I'll stop singing. Why you gotta be so uptight, God? Just relax. Like, why you always gotta be so angry? I read the Old Testament, I go through the prophets, I go through First and Second Kings, and you're just punishing people, you're punishing nations. Like, what is the big deal? I mean, I'm human, I'm screwed up, nobody's perfect. And so we think that God is OCD or something about human failure. Like, I gotta punish sin, I gotta punish people. But is that really the case? Or is it that we have become so steeped in our sin and so adapted to our brokenness that it's just become normal to us. We've become so steeped and adapted in our sinfulness and in our selfishness and in our brokenness that we don't even see anything wrong with us anymore. And then God's holiness comes along and God's holiness confronts sin, exposes our brokenness, exposes our sin, judges sin. And we don't like that. But God isn't the one with the problem. We are. So using the sun again as another illustration here. Let's say it's a hot summer day in Virginia. I love the heat. I love when it just gets hot and and 90 degree sweaty Virginia. I love it. Who's with me? Okay. We'll start a support group. Hello, my name is Austin and I like sweating. That sounded weird. I'm going to keep going. So... Just using the sun again as an illustration, let's say you, you're, you're in the sun and it's hot, it's 90 degrees. I hope that no one would, would really just rebuke the sun and say, how could you do this? The, the, your energy and your heat, how could you do this to me? Why you got to be so hot and give off so much energy? And the sun would say, listen, little human, you exist because I give off heat and energy. You're really going to kick back? That's just as absurd as humans protesting the holy God when he confronts and judges our sin and brokenness. You really want to do that? What would you prefer then? That God wasn't holy? That God was apathetic towards sin? That God didn't care about injustices? That God didn't care about the brokenness and the corruption of our world? That God was apathetic? No, you you want a holy God. You are quick to point out when something is not right, when something is wrong in your world or in your environment, but then when right and wrong confronts you, I don't like that. And this is why I find it very interesting and, and honestly somewhat amusing when people are upset at the God of the Old Testament. And they ask questions like, why does God always seem so angry, so upset in the Old Testament? Well, in short, because there was a lot of rebellion in the Old Testament. Quick answer. But why does God seem so angry and so upset in the Old Testament? I don't like that God. I don't want to serve that God. I don't want to worship that God. Why does God seem so angry in the Old Testament? Do you know what the people were doing? Have you read what the nations of the world and what Israel itself was doing to merit such anger from God? A few examples. They were sacrificing their own kids in fire to a God called Molech. They were murdering 
and raping. They were cheating and stealing from one another. There was violence. They were having perverted sexual relationships. And even still, in this moral corruption, do you know how long God waited sometimes until he punished certain people? For the Amorites, he waited 400 years, even though they were sacrificing their own kids in a pit of fire. And so it's interesting to me when people, people say, I don't like that God. He's angry in the Old Testament. The God we serve is the God of Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. 2 Peter 3, 9. God is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel the prophet said this, Say to them, As surely as I live, says the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And what's so interesting to me is that people see the evil and the wickedness of our world, like I'm talking about our current world, People see the evil and the wickedness and the corruption of our current world, and they say, if God is real and if God is so loving, why doesn't God do anything about this? Why doesn't God intervene? But then when God does do something about it in the Old Testament, they're like, how could a loving God do that? Do you see the inconsistency here with me? And so, we have this grave misunderstanding because we get ticked off when God confronts us because we perceive God as this always angry, can't stand human failure, wants to uh, kill people, takes pleasure in crushing and destroying sinners. And that is where you could not be more wrong. Let's see what God's holiness does when he confronts Isaiah. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. Isaiah is in the presence of a holy God. And what does God do? What does God's holiness do when it when he confronts Isaiah, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. So what is the purpose of God's holiness? What does God's holiness do? It confronts, it exposes, and it judges. Isaiah, in the midst of a holy God, woe is me, I am undone. God's holiness exposes and confronts and judges sin and brokenness. Why? Why does God's holiness do that? For what purpose? In order to heal and save. What's the purpose of God's holiness? To confront and expose what's wrong and to do something about it so that he can heal and save and transform Isaiah. And see how Isaiah's sin is dealt with in verse 6. It's weird in verse 6 where one of these creatures, one of these seraphim, 
They fl- fly to Isaiah, it says in verse 6, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, may your sin be purged. So a hot coal to the lips. I mean, just go home, turn on the stove, wait till it gets red and hot, and then just plant your lips right down on that. That's painful. That's uncomfortable. In this healing process of sin, there's going to be pain. There's going to be discomfort. Big implications here. Sin is atoned for by this painful process. Now, the word atoned is just a Bible word that means how does God deal with sin? So sin in this story, it's atoned for. Isaiah's sin, after he's exposed in the presence of God's holiness, his sin is dealt with with a painful, hot, uncomfortable process. This painful process is the way that God deals with the mess of human tragedy and sin. Whatever God is going to do to heal and save, it's going to be costly and it's going to be painful. Where does that sound familiar, church? On the cross, 2,000 years ago, when God dealt with your sin through a costly, painful process by putting it on His Son, Jesus Christ. So this passage here, it points to Jesus on the cross, this painful process by which God's holiness dealt with our sin so that we could be healed and saved. In this passage, it says your sin has been purged. And God does His purging process of our sin when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ when He died on that cross. God's holiness is like an x-ray. Think of God's holiness like an x-ray. You go to the doctor. There's something wrong with your arm. You go, doctor, there's something wrong with my arm. It's not working. It's not functioning. I think it might be broken. He says, let's put it under the x-ray so that we can truly expose it. And he says, you say, doctor, I don't want to put my arm under the x-ray because that's going to reveal how brokenness, how broken my arm actually is. And the doctor says, exactly. I want the x-ray to expose how truly broken you are so that I then have the opportunity to properly mend and restore it. And so when you go through life and and, and God's holiness scares you because God's holiness confronts sin and it judges sin and God's holiness punishes sin, it is necessary to reveal the brokenness of our own souls so that when you are confronted in the presence of a holy God, you are undone like Isaiah and you are exposed for who you truly are, God, in your holy presence. I am undone. I am broken. And what does God do to someone who recognizes their brokenness? Does He punish them? Does he judge them? He punished and judged his own son on the cross so that he could heal and forgive and repair and restore the brokenness of your soul. That's what God's holiness does. That's the purpose of God's holiness. Not to punish, not to judge. God's holiness exposes our brokenness. And yes, if you don't do anything about that realization, then you will remain in your brokenness eternally separated from a holy God. But if you come to a holy God 
like Isaiah and you recognize just how broken you are like an x-ray, God can then reveal your brokenness to you and he can, by Jesus Christ on the cross, mend it and repair your brokenness and restore you and bring you into his presence. This is the God we serve. This is God's holiness. And when you receive the medicine for your brokenness called Jesus Christ, God then invites you into his holiness. And then this is what he says in his word. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and you come into his presence as broken sinful humanity in the presence of a holy God, when you receive the free gift of Jesus Christ, then First Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy now in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Ephesians 1.4, Paul would say, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Paul again in Romans 12 would say, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Peter again would say in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, though we are broken people, because God is a holy God, he mends the relationship through his son, and now he calls you to participate in his holiness. And he says, because I am holy, I want you now, because I am distinct, God says, because I am unique, because I am different, because I am set apart, now that you are in me, I want you to live a life that is different. I want you to live a life that is unique. I don't want you to look like the rest of the world. I want you to live a life that is holy, that is unique, set apart, different. And now he invites you into this relationship of holiness. But the good news is, is that he actually empowers you with his very holy presence called the Holy Spirit to help you live out a life of purity and holiness. And so when you come into that knowledge of your brokenness, when you kneel before God's holiness, God's holiness is a fearful thing, but that fear should drive you to repentance, to trust in the medicine of Jesus Christ that can heal your soul. And when you do that, God welcomes you in his arms and he says, now, son, daughter, I want you to participate in this holiness with me. And I want you to live a life that properly reflects my holiness so that the rest of this broken world, through you, can see my character. Amen? And Lord, that's where we pause for tonight. And we just lift you up tonight. We lift you up in this place tonight. God, you are holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. Lord, we worship you. We praise you for who you are. Thank you, God, for your holiness. And in light of that fact, Lord, 
I pray that we, when we look under this lens of your holiness, that we would see our brokenness, that we would see our desperate need for you, Lord, all the more. And we just thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our brokenness, for our sin, for our selfishness. And for those of us tonight who have made that decision to put their hope and their faith and trust in Jesus, I pray now that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to live holy and pure lives that are unique, that are different, that are set apart so that the rest of this world that is broken would see you working through us and in us and it would draw them to you, Lord. I pray that for my brothers and sisters tonight. I pray that for myself, Lord, that you would continue to root out of our hearts any bitterness or any anger, any strife, any worry, any hatred that we've been harboring, Lord, anything that is not of you, Lord, anything that does not properly reflect your holiness, may you root that out of us by your Holy Spirit. May you convict our hearts, Lord, so that we might just turn from it and repent and give it to you, Lord, so that we might live holy and pure lives before you, blameless in your sight. We thank you for your holiness. We love you, God. Thank you for not leaving us in our brokenness, God. But thank you for making a way by your son, Jesus Christ, that we could be restored and renewed and healed and mended. I pray for anyone in this room tonight who's just been really struggling, really fighting, maybe fighting with sin or temptation. I pray for anyone who's just been wrestling with any worry or doubt or anger or fear or any confusion about you, Lord. May you just minister to them. Tonight, this week, as they open your word, would you clearly speak to them? May you minister to their hearts, Lord, and may you remind them of your holiness and that your holiness, the purpose of it is to mend and repair and to save and to heal and forgive. Minister to them this week. Fill them full, fill them fresh, fill them hot with your Holy Spirit, Lord. We love you and we praise you, God, for you are holy and you are worthy of our praise, Lord. You are worthy of our praise. And we're just here tonight to say thank you, God, and we worship you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen.